parent, I'm sure, that's here this morning, has had a talk with their children about rules, right? And we tell our children that we have rules for them not to limit their fun, but to keep them safe and actually to maximize their fun by helping them to enjoy life safely and rightly. Rules are actually for their benefit. And the kids say, yeah, right. (laughs) We have a hard time convincing them of that fact. But it is true. That's why we as parents have rules for our children, not to limit their fun, but to keep them safe and to help them enjoy life, actually, according to those rules. And that's typically a talk that we usually have with our children. But I think we adults and we mature believers even would be wise to have that same talk with ourselves as it relates to God's commands in his word. And that same principle applies. People often think that the Bible is a collection of rules designed to limit our enjoyment of life and that in order to actually have fun in life, we need to stretch the rules or step outside of what God has prescribed. Homer Simpson, the eminent theologian that he is, once described Christianity like this. He said, it's the religion with all the well-meaning rules that don't really work in life. (laughs) And although it's a joke, I think that pretty much sums up what most people think about God's commands. They are there to limit our fun. They don't really work. It's the exact same attitude that a child has towards his parents' rules. But is that what the Bible is? Does God give us commands to follow because he's some supernatural divine killjoy? He wants to limit our fun and make us unhappy? I think we get an answer to that question actually from our passage today in 2 Samuel 5 and 6. Now before we get to that though, throw your mind back to last week. If you recall, we saw all kinds of mayhem, betrayals and battles, assassinations, murders, and so on in a civil war that would presume to determine who was going to sit on the throne of Israel. Would it be David or would it be Ishbosheth? And then finally Ishbosheth is killed and David now in this, this passage is the clear victor. So if you look at verse 1 of chapter 5, It says, all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led out and brought Israel in. And the Lord said to you, You shall be the shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. So all the fighting is done, everyone has accepted the outcome, and God's promise to David to be king over all Israel is finally fulfilled. And one of David's first acts as the new king of Israel is to establish a capital city, which he decided would be Jerusalem. And he wanted to do this because Jerusalem was right on the border of the tribe of Judah and the rest of Israel, and it was a move that would help to bring peace between the different tribes. But there's a problem with that plan, because if you remember way back in Israel's history during the time of Joshua, Joshua leads the Israelites into the promised land, and they are to conquer everyone in it and cast them out. And they did a great job of that, except Jerusalem. The city of Jerusalem still had those people in it from hundreds and hundreds of years before. So in order for David to make Jerusalem the capital of his nation, he first needs to conquer his enemies in Jerusalem, which is what he does in verses 6 through 10 of chapter 5. 
And look for a second at verse 10. After David takes that city, it says that David became greater and greater for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. You see, that is where David's success and power come from, from God. God has destined him to lead his people into a golden age. And keep that in mind because it's going to become very important here in just a moment. Go on to verse 11 of chapter 5. These are the verses we read a few minutes ago. It says that Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David in cedar trees, also carpenters and masons, who built David a house. And David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people, Israel. Now I think verse 12 there of chapter 5 is the hinge upon which the rest of these chapters and these verses in these two chapters hang. It's the foundation for what we're going to read next. And what we need to understand about it is that God is the ultimate authority in David's life. God is the one who made David king. God is the one who keeps David king. God is the one who gives prosperity to David and to the nation of Israel, as we already saw in verse 10. But there's an important piece of information given to us in verse 12. The first three words of verse 12 says, And David knew. Now, we as the readers, before verse 12, we already knew all those things, that it was God who was the one who made David king and sustains the kingdoms and so on. But in verse 12 now, it tells us that David now knows that as well. He knows that God is the one doing all of these things. And for whatever reason, the light bulb in his head, you know, gets brighter and brighter when this king of Tyre builds him this nice house. Now David knows for sure that God is the one who has done all of this. And God is the one that is in charge. And everything about David depends upon God. And that knowledge is what compels David to regard God's commands as worthy of being followed. You see, again, that light bulb goes on in David's head. If all of this belongs to God, and all of this is God's doing, and anything that I want in the future depends upon God, then the smart thing for me to do would be to listen closely to him. And when he tells me to do something, to do it. So it seems as though David has had this epiphany that God is the one in charge, and so I'm going to do what he tells me. And again, this principle sets the tone for everything that we read in these chapters. This is why David is so eager to consult God when he makes military decisions in the next few verses. Skip down to verse 18. It says, The Philistines had come and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. And David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand? And the Lord said to David, Go up. For I will certainly give the Philistines into your hand. And David came to Baal Perazim, and David defeated them there. And he said, The Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breaking flood. Therefore, the name of that place is called Baal Perazim. So, again, David has had this epiphany that God is in charge, and so he's going to move against the Philistines. If he's going to move against the Philistines, it should only be because God says to do it. So he asks God what to do. God tells him, go up, and he does. And boom, success. He's defeated the Philistines. Following God's instructions leads to success. And we see this same principle again right away in verse 22. 
it says the Philistines came up yet again and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. And when David inquired of the Lord, he said, you shall not go up, go around to their rear and come against them opposite the balsam trees. And when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees, then rouse yourself for the Lord has gone out before you to strike down the army of the Philistines. And David did as the Lord commanded him and struck down the Philistines from Geba to Gezer. Here again, Lord, what should I do? Should I go up? No. This time go around and wait for the signal. And David is careful to do what God instructs him to do, and as a result, he finds success. Again, it's important to note this. Not because David is so wise and cunning at leading an army. No, it's because of, he is obedient to what God told him to do. Because David realizes that God is the one who calls the shots. And so he wisely decides to pay attention to the shot caller. And then we see this pattern continue in chapter 6, although a little differently. Now that he has a capital city, it makes sense that David would bring the ark of God to that capital city. Not only as a symbol to the people of Israel, but it is literally the place of God's dwelling on that ark. If you recall, uh, back in the book of 1 Samuel, the Israelites had used that ark as kind of a good luck charm that they would roll out into battle and say, here's our, our God is kind of symbolized in this ark, so ah, prepare to meet your doom, enemies. And God said, you know what? I'm not into being used that way. <laughs> I'm not a good luck charm. So he allowed the Israelites to be defeated, and the Philistines stole the ark and carried it off to their land. But the Philistines treated the ark even worse, so they got rid of it, and it came back to Israel. But you know what? The Israelites didn't really want it either. Ark has become kind of like a bad penny, because they know that God's presence is on the ark, and that scared them. So they actually stashed it in the house of a guy named Abinadab. And the ark has been at Abinadab's house for 20 years. But now, you know, Israel is established. David is the anointed king. He has a capital city. And he says it's fitting to bring the ark to that capital. So go to chapter 6, verse 3. It says, They carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ohio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ohio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there because the ark, or excuse me, beside the ark of God. Now, we might read this passage and think that God is subject to temper tantrums. This guy Uzzah touched the ark with his hand, and God killed him for it. And now again, we might really think, hey, is that really necessary? After all, Uzzah, I mean, I'm sure he had good intentions, right? He saw that the ark was starting to tilt on that cart. And he said, well, we don't want this thing to fall. So he just put his hand out to steady the ark. Plus, I mean, lifting your hand up to steady something that is falling, presumably on top of him, it's just a natural reaction, right? It's instinctual, actually. Cut the guy some slack, would you, God? But no. 
he doesn't cut him some slack. God strikes Uzzah down. Now, is that really necessary? Well, based on what we've already seen in chapter 5 about God being the one in control, God being the one in charge, God being the one who makes the rules, I'm going to argue that it actually is necessary for at least two reasons. First, it's necessary because God is just that holy. Now, holiness refers to God's separation from everything else. God is utterly above and beyond anything that we know of. He is completely separate from his creation because he is perfectly righteous and glorious and powerful. And we, his creation, are not perfectly righteous, glorious, and powerful. We are not holy and separate. We are sinful and corrupted. And when sin and holiness come together, there's a natural reaction Now, in that sense, Uzzah's death wasn't a punishment, but it was just kind of a natural consequence. Like, if you touch a hot stove, you're going to get burned. And there's nothing inherently immoral about accidentally touching a hot stove, but there's still a reaction, because your flesh and a hot stove don't mix. Sin and holiness don't mix. And when they come into contact with one another, perfect holiness is always going to overcome sin. Now, from a human perspective, when a sinful person comes into contact with perfect holiness, that, that sinful person will be overcome. Look, this is why you need a Savior. Because God is perfectly holy and you are not. And so in order for you to be right with God, you need to be made perfectly holy or else God's holiness will overcome you in your sinful state. And you know what? Becoming perfectly holy is not something that you can do on your own. There's no method for obtaining perfect holiness. There are no rules you can follow to be perfectly holy. You will always be stained by sin. And if you come into contact with God's perfect holiness in your sinful condition, the natural reaction or consequence will be your destruction. And the only way that you can be made perfectly holy is for God himself to give you his own perfect holiness. And he he desires to give it to you through faith in Jesus. Through your belief that Jesus suffered the penalty for your sin on the cross. And through faith, Jesus will give you his perfect righteousness, his perfect holiness. And he will take your sin on himself. So you, unlike Uzzah, won't be overcome by the perfect holiness of God. But instead, you can live with God forever in perfect holiness. Jesus became Uzzah on your behalf. He took your sinfulness on himself and he went and encountered perfect holiness and had the wrath of God poured on him for that sin so that you could live forever in holiness by repentance and faith. So that's one reason why God struck down Uzzah for touching the ark. But there's another more practical reason. And it's that God explicitly told his people on numerous occasions how to handle the ark. And in this situation, they just simply didn't do what he told them to do. God gave his people exactingly specific instructions about how to regard the ark, how to treat it, how to move it, and so on, because it is holy. It is where God's presence dwells. 
For instance, how did they decide to move the ark from Abinadab's house? What does it tell us in 2 Samuel 6? It says that they put it on a new cart. But did you know that in the Old Testament, God gives instructions in Exodus chapter 12 and in Numbers chapter 4 that the ark is only ever to be moved by being carried by human beings on long poles, not on a cart. Now, why might that be important? Well, because if you carry it on poles and everyone is standing well away from it as they carry it, then no one will ever have the temptation to reach up and steady it while it's on an unsteady cart. You see, God knew what he was talking about. This is the same thing that David already learned. God's in charge. God is the one who sustains and and provides. So I'm going to listen to him. And God told his people how to regard the ark because he knew what was best. But they decided not to listen to those instructions. And so Uzzah died. Also, God gave specific instructions that the things that he had made holy must not be touched like the ark for that very reason that we see here with Uzzah. And again, that's another reason to carry the ark with those long poles and not on a cart that's being pulled by animals. But here, the point is that when God gives instructions and we listen to those instructions and we put those instructions into practice, you know what? Things go well. People flourish. And when we don't listen to those instructions that God gives us, God, the holy God, ruler of the universe, that he has every right to give us, when we don't listen to those instructions, you know what? Things generally don't go well, as Uzzah can attest to. Now, think back to parenting children again. We tell our children that we have rules for their good, and when those rules are violated, that there are consequences right? And our children respond and they say, thank you, mother and father, for your rules, right? Isn't that how your kids responded? That's definitely how my perfect children responded. We delight in following your rules, father. No, they didn't say that. But this is, you know, when you tell your kids about the rules and you tell your kids that if a a rule is broken, there are going to be consequences. And we as parents have consequences for breaking the rules because that consequence is meant to instruct the child, right? When the rule is broken, there is something unpleasant and you are to learn from that unpleasantness and use that as motivation to obey the next time. Again, that should have been the same lesson that this unfortunate event involving Uzzah was supposed to teach. God had rules for carrying the ark. Those rules were violated. There was a consequence. And just like a child should learn from consequences when rules are broken, so should God's people learn from consequences, the consequences of our actions when we disregard God's commands. Now, unfortunately here, that is not the lesson that is learned by David. Instead, David acts very much like a child who is disciplined by his parent and he refuses to learn and gets angry and afraid. That's David's response when he sees this consequence. And again, isn't that very much like a child? Look at uh, chapter 6, verse 8. After all this business with Uzzah happens, it says that David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? 
So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David, but David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. Now, what David should have learned when Uzzah was struck down by God is that God's instructions are important to follow. But instead, David gets angry at God for being so sensitive, and he becomes afraid of bringing the ark into his city, thinking, hey, this same thing might happen to me or to someone else in Jerusalem. I'm not bringing that thing anywhere near me. And so again, the ark becomes like a bad penny, and David passes it off to this Obed-Edom guy. Now, to be frank, what we see in David here is the typical response to God's commands that most people have. They are angry that God gives commands to follow. And they become angry because they think that God's commands will limit their fun and enjoyment of life. So God's commands become a burden, right? Something I must do rather than something I enjoy doing. Ugh, why do I have all of these rules? If it weren't for these rules, I'd do whatever I wanted. Becomes a burden. I guess I have to follow them just so... You know, things go well. Uh, it's a burden for people. Or, again, like David, people become afraid of God. And they think, if I don't obey all of God's commands, he's going to get me. I'm going to end up like Uzzah. So now, all of a sudden, your motivation, your desire to obey God's commands is born out of fear. And that's not the kind of obedience God wants from you. And it's not the kind of obedience you want to give. Again, think of a child who lives in fear of his parents of breaking the rules. If I don't follow the rules, they're going to get me. Is that a good relationship? Is that a healthy relationship? Absolutely not. And that is not the kind of relationship God wants with his people. And it's not the kind we want. We don't want to obey out of fear or anger. But you see, the opposite is true. Following God's commands doesn't need to be done out of anger or fear because when we actually do what God says to do, his commands lead to life. They lead to blessing. This is what David discovers next. Look at verse 12 of chapter 6. It was told King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Edom, of Obed-Edom, and all that belongs to him because of the ark. So David went and brought the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. Now, that's interesting. When David hears that someone is regarding the ark properly and they're obeying God's commands concerning the ark, hey, that man receives blessing. And so all of a sudden, David thinks, maybe I should have the ark in Jerusalem. Funny how that works, isn't it? But there is a blessing when we follow God's commands. Following his commands leads to life and blessing, not fear and anger. And in the next verses we read about David, he goes and gets the ark again, and he's dancing before the Lord with all of his might. And the people of Israel all come out, and they're blessed by the arrival of the ark, except for David's wife, Michael, who is embarrassed by him, but that's another story. But listen, folks, the point is this. God knows what he's doing Remember back in chapter 5, it says, and David knew that God had established him. He knew that God was in charge, and so then that his commands are worthy of being kept. But then we learn in chapter 6 that not only are, the, are God's commands worthy of being kept, but they are good for us. They will lead to life and blessing. 
As a general rule, I think I can say that pretty confidently. Not always, but generally, the more we follow God's commands and live according to his word, the more life and blessing we will enjoy. And I don't mean that in some you know, prosperity gospel sense that if you just obey God, then all your wildest dreams will come true. In fact, you know what? Sometimes obeying God's commands gets you thrown into the lion's den. But even there, you will have the satisfaction of knowing that you were obedient to your God who is authoritative and worthy of giving you those commands to follow. And oh yeah, you know what? If God's commands get you thrown into the lion's den, you're not going there alone. He will be there with you. But as a general rule, things go well when we listen to God and do what he says. And the converse is also true. If we do not listen to God and do what he says, you know what? Things usually don't go well. They tend to fall apart. That's when the difficulties arise of our own making, usually. You know, there's a whole chapter of the Bible about this very thing. If you want a little homework assignment this week, go home and read Psalm 119. Psalm 119 is all about how obeying God's word leads to life and to blessing. When we obey his commands, good things happen. And when we disobey his commands, generally bad things happen. The difficult thing is that we try to find every reason we can to not obey God's commands, or at least to excuse disobedience. Maybe we think it's a victimless crime, right? Sure, I'm not obeying God here technically, but nobody's getting hurt. What's the big deal? Can I tell you that that is a lie from the pit of hell? It's a lie straight from the devil to you. And I can tell you that because David did the exact same thing. He thought, we're going to look at this right now, he said, you know, what's, what's the big deal about this? Nobody's getting hurt. I can do this. After all, I'm the king. Skip down to verse 13. Oh, I'm sorry. Go back to chapter 5. Go back to chapter 5 and look at verse 13. Because there's an area of David's life where he shirks obedience to God's commands because he thinks it will be fun. And after all, he's the king, right? He's not really hurting anybody, at least according to him. So if you go back to chapter 5 and look at verse 13, this, we skipped over this initially, but it says this. It says that David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem after he came from Hebron, and more sons and daughters were born to David. So here, David, because he can, he does something he thinks will be fun, and I'm sure it was fun in the moment. He takes more wives and concubines for himself. And there's really only one reason to take more wives and concubines, and I'm sure you can figure that out on your own. And David did this in direct violation of God's explicit command not to have more than one wife, let alone any concubines. But David did this. I mean, by this time, I think David's up to eight or nine wives. I don't remember how many exactly he has by 2 Samuel chapter 5, but he has eight or nine wives and many concubines. And David does this. Why does he do this? Well, he's king. He can do that. And he thought it would be fun to have all these wives and concubines. But do you remember a couple of weeks ago when we started this series, I said that the book of 2 Samuel is divided into two sections. The first 10 chapters are all about David's military victories. 
And then after chapter 10, starting in chapter 11, from till the rest of the book, it's about the consequences of David's personal failings. And they're almost all directly related to verses like 13 of chapter 5. This is a personal failing when David takes all of these wives and concubines onto himself. And it is going to have huge consequences for him later in life to the extent that this kingdom that he is now ruling over in peace and prosperity is going to be fractured and he's going to be back on the run for his life yet again. David's kingdom is eventually turned upside down precisely because he shirked God's commands here and there because he thought it might be fun. Not to, nobody's getting hurt. And I want to have some fun. Come on. I'm just going to do it. But you know what? That momentary pleasure for David leads to horrible consequences. Again, we're going to see this in a few weeks. His kingdom is torn apart. And all of these wives that David took for himself and all the children that come from these wives that he never should have had in the first place are a direct result of what causes the difficulty. Because he said, yeah, God commanded one wife. You know what? More wives is more fun. And I'm the king, so why not? Here's the point, friends. God has given us commands in his word. And he is worthy to be obeyed simply because of who he is. He is our creator and sustainer. The book of Acts says that in him we live and move and have our being. In him, he's the only one keeping me alive right now. In him I move and live and have my being. So he is therefore worthy of my obedience. But he has also given us his commands for our good. When we obey him, we experience his life and his blessing. When we disobey him, things get tough. And again, that principle is virtually what the entire Old Testament shows over and over and over again. In general, if you listen to and obey God, things go well. And in general, if you don't, they don't go well. So let me respectfully ask you, is it possible that you might be struggling somehow because you've shrugged off obedience? You said, eh, it's not a big deal. And actually, I want to have some fun. Is it possible that some of the things you're going through in life right now might because of a, be because of a cavalier attitude towards sin or towards obeying God's commands? If that's you... I don't want to shame you or guilt you, but I want to acknowledge the reality that this is what the Bible teaches. And if you've shrugged off obedience to God's commands, I don't want you to wallow in guilt and shame because that's why God gave us the cross. That's why he sent Jesus. Remember, we are unholy, and so each one of us in our sin tends to break God's commands. That's why we need the cross. It's why we need a Savior, because we are not holy. And so God sent His Son, and He has a deep well of blood to cover our sin. And as we'll see in a few weeks again, yes, David did shirk off obedience to God's commands, and he put it, you know, way on the back burner. In fact, sometimes he didn't even just, he didn't regard it at all, and just did whatever he wanted to do. 
But when David sees his sin, when he sees what this has done to him and to his kingdom, David it becomes the first to go and admit his sin, to confess it, and to turn from it, and to get back on the train of obedience following God's commands. So I'd ask you to examine yourself, examine your life, and to, to see how you are in obeying God's commands. Again, not because we're keeping score, right? Because none of us are going to win this game of following God's commands. But how are you obeying God according to who he is? Do you know, like David knew in chapter 5, that it was the Lord who has established you? And if you know that, then God has, he's worthy of, of you obeying his commands. But again, don't think of it like this. Following his commands is what is good for you. It will lead to life. So follow God's commands. And you're going to blow it. You're going to make mistakes and break one every now and then, now and again. And when that happens, go back to the cross. And then pick yourself up and move on. So the question for you this morning is, are you willing to trust that God knows what he's talking about? That his commands in his word are good? That his commands are worthy of being obeyed? And are you willing to trust him and walk in obedience? Let's pray. Our Father God, we thank you for your word. Lord, it is a wellspring of life for us. Your commands are life. Lord, as we say with the, the psalmist, how I love your law. Because Lord, your law leads to blessing. It leads to life. Your commands are good for us. God, help us to see you for who you are, the Lord of our lives who has established each one of us in the paths that we walk. Lord, help us to see that your commands are good, that they're not here to limit our fun or to kill our enjoyment of anything, but, in order, but to lead us to life. God, we come also this morning, I hope, confessing to you honestly about all the times that we have failed to follow your commands, all the times we've broken your law, maybe disregarded it, maybe shrugged it off because we thought it wouldn't be fun. Whatever the case may be, Lord, we are sinners. And in light of that fact, Lord, I thank you that you have that deep well of grace, that bottomless well of grace to cover our transgressions. Lord, may we not take advantage of it or treat it cheaply, but to know the value and the cost of the blood of the Son of God for each drop that was spilt so we might not treat your grace cheaply, but instead love to follow your commands because of who you are and what you have done and how you will lead us to that life and blessing by those commands. God, give us that heart of obedience. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of his Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Amen. Amen.